Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to episode 9 of The Real Film Chronicles. As always, I'm Nathan. My name is Brian. And today, we're going to be talking about Mank, the latest from David Fincher. So sit back, grab your popcorn and drink, and get ready. Fantastic. I got a refreshing beverage here ready to go. I hope you do, too. As you said, we're going to be talking about Mank. Came out in 2020. This is David Fincher's latest film about the film industry. I always like these uh, movies. It's kind of a curiosity. Uh, This particular movie stars Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, among a whole host of other familiar faces you would recognize as soon as you get into the film. And just to give you an idea, here's a... The quick overview provided by, you know, the movie DB and Letterboxd, just to give you an idea of what movie you're kind of looking at as you get into this. Here it is. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. 100% of that I didn't know before going into Mank. To be completely honest with you, I knew it was a movie about the movies. I didn't realize it had such ties to Citizen Kane, but here we are. Yeah, and I knew I had a general idea. Like, I knew it was specifically about the screenwriter for Citizen Kane, but I didn't know anything about the history per se. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane. It's, you know, it's well known and well loved for Mm -hmm. a reason. It was hugely influential in the filmmaking industry, not just in terms of, of storytelling, um, you know, kind of nonlinear storytelling, which wasn't the really in vogue at the time as it is now, um, but also just in terms of filmmaking techniques, uh, which so many of it, so much of it we take for granted now, both as filmmakers and as audience members, but a lot of the mm-hmm. techniques in terms of, you know, camera movements, camera angles and camera lenses and, and, and just how they constructed sets and visual effects um, was pretty groundbreaking at the time. So Citizen Kane, despite it not being one of my favorite go-to movies, I mean, even if it's not one of your favorite movies, you have to recognize the influence that this picture had in in culture and in motion picture history specifically. And I might lose some credibility here, but I didn't see Citizen Kane for the first time until I think two years ago. I found a uh, special edition of it on Blu-ray. Uh, I decided, well, I should pick this up because it's in a, in a packaging series that I really enjoyed collecting, but also I need to see Citizen Kane. And I, quite frankly, was blown away with it uh, when I did finally get around to watching it. Leading up to Mank, I knew the movie was coming out. I didn't know really what it was about, but I knew it was directed by David Fincher, and that was basically enough to get me excited for it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say we're both huge Fincher fans. I don't know if I'd call myself a fanboy, but yeah, I mean, if I could go out to theaters to see this movie when it came out, I would. This did see a very limited theatrical release in uh, November of 2020. And then it hit Netflix just a month later. I don't know if Netflix does that just to try and get itself into the Oscar contention. Uh, but that's that's where we're at right now. And it did uh, receive a whole host of nominations for acting, cinematography, uh, obviously Best Picture. And it only won, I think, a couple of them, which I don't remember because I'm not that big into the Oscars. But that being said, David Fincher films were both big fans and I thought before we jump into this uh, Mank uh, review, we talk about our ranking of 
Fincher's films. He's only done 11 feature films so far. So I think this is a pretty appropriate top 10 list. And <laughs> afterwards, after we give our list and then we'll talk about Mank. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It was, it was kind of crazy. I, I thought I was like going crazy or something because I went to look up on IMDb and, and David Fincher's got 94, I think directing credits to his name. And I had to, I, did I just miss a bunch of movies, but it's mostly, this, <laughs> yeah. he's done a ton of music videos. I didn't realize lots of music yeah. videos. I think that's kind of how he got his start in the industry. Um, his music videos, uh, just like a lot of young directors, I think in the in the nineties when music videos were the thing to be doing, right? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I just I didn't realize it was like that many. It was pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. So, do you have your top ten list ready? Oh, I'm ready. I'm locked and loaded this time. I've got my uh, my notebook and everything here. So, yeah, the top 11. Let's start at the bottom. What is okay. your number 11 Fincher film? And I got to just, before we get into this, again, we're Fincher fanboys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, even the very bottom of the list are probably three and a half or four star films for me. I really do love all of his movies. I love his directing style. Yeah. Um, it actually, it pains me to have to put these movies into a ranking and have a bottom of the list. And conversely, it is almost impossible to make a top three. Some of these movies, their rankings are completely interchangeable. That being said, that disclaimer of the way, let's hear your number 11. Yeah, like like Brian said, uh, a huge fan of all his movies, so even... At number 11 is is still a really good film, but my number 11 is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. For me, it's a great story. It's well-directed. The special effects are amazing in terms of the aging slash de-aging on the two main characters played by, uh, obviously, Brad Pitt as Benjamin Button, re- aging in reverse, and Kate Blanchett aging in uh, regular time. Um, but something about the film just didn't have that... Um, didn't have the maybe that's something special that some of his other films had. It's an incredibly well directed film, but just didn't have the same maybe magic as some of the other ones. But that being said, still a really great film, well directed story. You should go out and see it definitely, without a doubt. That's a uh, that's a solid entry in the Criterion Collection right there. One of the things was it was based on a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, so at, at times it just feels maybe like it was a little bit longer than it had to be, maybe. Fantastic. And my number 11, oh, it, it almost pains me to put this movie down there, but Alien 3, which uh, probably, I mean, for most people, this is a fairly universally disliked film. Um, I've seen, I, I saw it back in the 90s, probably uh, a couple years after it released. I remember renting the VHS and watching it in a rainstorm with my dog next to me. Um, I've seen the quote-unquote director's cut afterwards uh, just a few years ago and you know the alien quadrilogy box set yeah was it the the assembly cut is that what it's called assembly cut i think you might be right because i think david fincher kind of washed his hands of that whole movie yeah yeah exactly so that's my number 11 it almost seems like too easy of a target to, to throw out there um though that actually leads pretty well into my number 10 which is alien 3 um i understand Mm -hmm. kind of the hate gets um but also on the other hand it's not nearly as bad as people say it is especially the the assembly cuts um i think part of it is 
the difference between doing what the story needs versus doing what the audience wants or expects. Mm-hmm. And for the story he wanted to tell, um, he did a, a really great job. And I think he took it back to the Alien franchise's kind of really dark kind of horror roots. Um, but again, solid movie, but I wouldn't put it in his in his top, uh, in his, anywhere near his top three or top five, I think. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, my number 10 is your number 11. It's the <laughs> curious case of Benjamin Button. Um, I remember enjoying the film. I don't have any urge to see it again. Um, it was good. Um, I really do owe it to myself to watch it again, though. <laughs> yeah, 100%. All right. So it sounds like we're pretty close here. So my number nine yeah. is going to have to be Panic Room. Again. Panic Room. Yeah, again. I So this is one I... Out of all of David Fincher's movies, the one I remember the least was Panic Room. And so I, I just watched this again the other night just to refresh my memory because I don't know if it was just it was back in university and maybe we were drinking at the time or maybe it was just on TV and I didn't <laughs> see it all. But for some reason, it didn't stick with me. But I watched it again. And honestly, there were some really, really tense moments where I was like, I was getting physically nervous and, and I, yeah. I felt myself like tensing up and my heart racing faster. Like he's got <laughs> like, just like you can see like the master David Fincher in terms of like um, when he constructs a thriller narrative, right? When he gets the audience involved and he, he's able to build that tension to such an amazing degree. Again, yeah. it's like, it's in, it's my number nine pick out of his movies, but it's still a really good, really engaging movie. Like out of curiosity, what what star rating? Out of, like out of five stars, did do you give Panic Room? Panic Room? Oh my goodness! I think it was either it was like a three and a half or a four. <laughs> so it's yeah. like <laughs> I mean that's yeah I mean that's kind of the quality that we're dealing with here, even at the bottom of the list. This is the thing again. It's like it's lower on the list, but it's still it's still a great movie. I found myself like I was like yelling at the characters, like no, do this. I was like, yeah. and all the characters, even the the criminals breaking into the house. Spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it, but they were all felt like like three dimensional people, right? They were given their little character beats, and it was mm-hmm. really, really great how you don't have to go into tons of exposition and backstory. This is like really, really economic storytelling. That's that's fantastic. Number nine, Brian. My number nine. Um is the title film here of this podcast is Mank. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this could be three and a half or four stars for me. But um, yeah, this is just where it sort of ended up lying. And we'll probably be talking more about the film later on. So I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that, just having Mank at number nine for me. And I believe that brings us to your number eight. Number eight. Um, so this is kind of a, so I was going kind of by tier. So it was like a kind of a top tier, mid tier, kind of lower tier. Mm-hmm. And so like some of these might be interchangeable, but for number eight, I had Gone Girl. Again, really great atmospheric film, um, really great performances, really great direction. Exactly the kind of like tension building you expect to see from David Fincher, the kind of kind of very gritty, very moody, very darkly lit, not poorly lit, but darkly lit. Um, scenes and like his filmmaking technique and his camera angles and all that kind of good stuff. Um, But for me, something about the narrative maybe just didn't click. And this is one of the ones where I, I, 
one of the rare occasions where I actually read the book before seeing the movie. Oh, really? And so nice. I'm wondering to what degree that knowing the twist ending had yeah. going it. Would I have liked it more at my first viewing if I hadn't known that twist? I don't know. But it's a solid movie. But for me, it's kind of middle of the pack Fincher, which is better than most other directors. But for Fincher, middle of the pack for me. Number eight, Gone Girl. Yeah. No, I really like the idea of putting them into three different tiers because even the low tier here can be really fantastic. Uh All right, so I think that brings me to my number seven. Is that right? I think you're on number eight. Oh, that's right. My number eight. I just wanted to talk about the (laughs) the number seven because I enjoyed it that much more. (laughs) What's your number eight? Uh, Number eight for me is The Social Network. Um, This one probably would have ranked a bit higher, but... Yeah, I honestly don't know. It's like there's something strange about doing a biopic on such a prominent public figure as Mark Zuckerberg so early in his career. It's just that Zuckerberg's career just skyrocketed when he launched Facebook and it just propelled him into the stratosphere. There's a lot of intrigue around it and it felt like it was going to be an incomplete story, like an incomplete biopic when it was coming out it's like we needed a second social network because so much has happened since fed and i believe that film was 2010 right i mean that's only a few years after the facebook <laughs> launches for for the public and here we are 11 years later and there's a whole host of movies that deserve their own content from this thing social network is number eight where's your where's your number seven okay so number seven is where i have mank Oh, that's pretty fair. Yeah, so it was. It's tough because it's it's the freshest in my mind, having seen it most recently, aside from Panic Room, and because it is so, um, it's so different from so many of his other films in terms of subject matter, in terms of um, filming. Like it was done in black and white, specifically to mm-hmm. evoke that kind of old timey feel that I think works really well in the context of that film. Um, this just some really beautiful shots that you can get in black and white that you just it doesn't translate to color, and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? Just just the contrast between the, the the blacks and the whites is like there's there's a real beauty in in black and white when you do it properly, and there's really some great shots in Mank where just like. Yeah, it took it took me back to like watching like Casablanca and, and Maltese Falcon and Citizen Kane when I was a kid, and yeah. you know like that that feeling of watching some of these older movies. Um, but again, we'll leave the full discussion for later on. But I thought Mank was a really solid um, entry. My number seven is a classic favorite, The Game, starring Michael Douglas. Wow, that's number seven for you? It's that low, huh? I know. I'm I know. It almost shames me that it is that low, but I mean, <laughs> this is honestly one of my first Fincher films that I really, I think, discovered back in 97 or 98. Um, really amazing. It's just a really fun film. I don't think it has quite all the refinements that he would become Ooh. known for later on, but it's still an early film for Fincher, but it's still amazing. I love it. Hard, hard disagree on that assessment, but I respect it. <laughs> All right. What's your number six? Number six. Um, I'm gonna have to go with the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, oh, nice. It is. It's not my favorite Fincher flick. Um, partially because, and it gets more complicated here because the original um, Swedish versions of the girl with the dragon tattoo trilogy 
Um, I love that trilogy. Mm. It's kind of one of my um, kind of go to when somebody asks me about oh favorite trilogies. I want to pull up something like lesser known besides Indiana Jones or Back to the Future. I'll go. I'll recommend Girl with Dragon Tattoo. It's a really unique take on some unique work. And this one felt it felt it was definitely a Fincher film, the Girl with Dragon Tattoo American version. But it just felt like it was following too many beats of the um, first of the Swedish trilogy of Girl with Dragon Tattoo films. Mm-hmm. It didn't like I'd read the books as well, and I'd seen those original movies, and it felt like Fincher's American remake was remaking the movies as opposed to adapting the source material, even in some of the looks and feels of the character, and and that for me kind of dulled the edge a little bit. Um, did you read the books before? Uh, yes, actually, there was a. I don't know why. Well, I do know why because they were a huge global phenomenon, and my wife started <laughs> reading them, and then I started reading them because it was just something we could yeah. talk about and share together. Aw, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was, and there was very interesting things, and I think some of the stuff may have got, or some of the content stuff. Some of the content, some of the themes, and some of the ideas, I think, may have gotten lost in the translation to an American perspective, or a North American perspective, or a Hollywood perspective, I should say. Um, and it just kind of blunted the edge a little bit for me. But I mean, the girl with the dragon tattoo still has that great, like, moody, dark, kind of oppressive um, atmosphere. It's got that tension. Um, these characters with hidden motivations. Still a great film, a great soundtrack too. Um, you got to check out the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo soundtrack. It's yeah. it's pretty amazing. I think that was Trent Reznor, right? Like he works with yeah. uh, Fincher quite a bit. And yeah, oh, yeah, it's it's still it's a solid film for me. It's a I mean more than a solid film. I really enjoyed Fincher's version, <laughs> but just not quite to the heights as the original. And again, it's like it's a comparison between other movies as well. It's, yeah, it's a weird it's a, it's a weird way to judge it, but I can't help but be the way I am that's yeah don't never apologize for that <laughs> tell it to my wife <laughs> all right number six for uh, you yeah my number six uh, is really I mean a lot of these items are a toss-up number six and five are definitely a toss-up for me um Zodiac is at my number six hmm. this is a brilliant film I love the way this film looks and I think this is where Fincher really got into um using a lot of CGI and digital effects to make period films. Like this is a film that takes place in the seventies and eighties, I believe, or maybe it's just the seventies and it looks amazing. He would use these techniques later on in, in a lot of his other movies, but especially in his Netflix television series, Mindhunters. Um, I think the only reason maybe Zodiac doesn't go as high is just, it's a really long film and I'm not fully invested in it the entire time, but man, I'm just not being fair. I see the grin on your face and yeah, I can, I know I'm trying to think of a criticism or something interesting to say. It's I got fun. nothing, man. It's funny. All Zodiac the, is a four and a half star film. Yeah. It's, like, it's funny. All the things you're talking about is negatives. Like I'm just like, I want more. I love the director's cut. It's like, it adds more content. <laughs> is there a longer cut of Zodiac? Have you seen the director's cut? I don't think I have honestly. Oh yeah. You check All out. right, I'll have to go check that out. All right, what's your number five? Number five. Okay, these are getting to like my top like favoritest favoritest movies here. Number five <laughs> is just on the cusp of of that, and that is the Social Network. Um, for me, it was just that perfect combination. I think Aaron Sorkin wrote the script for this. Mm-hmm. 
um, which is like I I know Aaron Sorkin is contentious among different people. He's he's one of those writers slash directors that yeah, they're the people seem to either really love or really hate. And I just love Aaron Sorkin's like stylized dialogue. I love his story structure and, and 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 that and that kind of thing. And married with you know David Fincher's ability to tell a story. Like I had zero hopes for the Social Network. I was like, they're making a movie about Facebook. They're making a movie about yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. And I was like, I was completely uh, like against, not against it, but I was like, I was not interested at all. Right, I had yeah. no interest in this. Like, like you said, it was like early in his career, early in Facebook's inception. Like, this doesn't even make sense. And I was completely, totally wrong. I was blown away by this movie. Uh, amazing biopic. Um, again, it it strays just close enough to the truth to be entertaining, mm-hmm. but like, it's not. It's not the, an actual factual rec- representation of what happened. It's highly stylized. You have to take this into consideration. Um, an amazing story. Uh, again. Fincher takes his kind of, you know, darker storytelling techniques, building tension and takes that from making like thrillers about serial killers and, and turns it into like this tension between, um, you know, building this corporate empire and then this legal struggle Mm -hmm. afterwards. And it, it shouldn't work. Everything about it shouldn't work, but it does. It works so, (laughs) so well for me, but that's, it's really amazing. Number five, the social network, the Facebook movie. I never knew that I wanted my number five is Gone Girl. Um, oh, wow. I really enjoyed the mystery angle of this, kind of the uncertainty of what the characters have done, like what they have presumably done or may not have done. Uh, I did not go into this knowing anything about it. I hadn't read the book or or you know been spoiled in any way for the twist at the end, and I thought it was brilliant, which is maybe more of a testament to the the story itself, right? I should probably go read this book. But again, he got some really good good performances out here, especially Ben Affleck showing up in a Fincher film is good. And this film introduced Rosamund Pike to me as well. And everything she does has been fantastic since. Uh, it's just a really solid film. Love it. Oh, 100%. Like Ben Affleck blew it away. Um, and Rosamund Pike, yeah, like this put her on the map for me as well. Like I'd seen her in other things. But really, like this showed what she was capable of, and as an as an actor, mm-hmm. and it was just it was some really challenging material, and she nailed it. Yes, Rosamund Pike, that, that was a movie that sold me. It's like she needs to be in everything. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. What is your number right. four? So number four. So this is getting up. So this is getting up into like these top four are essentially like not just some of my favorite Fincher movies, but some of my favorite films of all time. This is like. Peak Fincher for me, peak mm-hmm. filmmaking, ex- <laughs> like peak filmmaking and peak film going experience. Number four is the game. The game. Yes. I remember seeing this when I was a teenager, and I remember it just like it blew me away. Like I don't have to rewatch this movie again. I I do rewatch this movie quite a bit. Um, I don't have to because it was ingrained on my brain. Just. <laughs> every scene, every story beat, and the whole the twist at the end—it literally, as a kid, this blew my mind. Yeah. If I didn't encounter it later in life, would it have done the same? I don't know, but it's ingrained on me. And just like the themes at the time weren't as relevant to me as you know, as a teenager. But now, as you know, a grown man approaching forty years old, a lot of the themes in the game, as opposed, you know, in terms of you know, um, 
getting older and, and your legacy and, and, and connections between friends and family, all those themes are becoming more and more relevant to me as I'm getting older. And just like, yeah. you know, like the, the, the tension that is being built and, and the use of, of camera angles and shots and the performances and the editing, all of it together is just amazing. Number four for me was the game. Fantastic. Love that film. Number four for me is going to be the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, wow. And everything about this movie, I just love this movie, like how it oozes, like this atmosphere and the, like you said, the sound with Trent Reznor and everything. Like it's just, this movie worked on so many different levels and I'll be completely honest. I was completely unaware of the original novels, the original movies, nothing. I was going into this again, just like Gone Girl, quite fresh. And I loved every second of it. I, it's a film that I definitely come back to every few years. It's just just really great. And it's just criminal that we never got a Fincher trilogy out of this. Uh, I'm not sure if he would have come back to do another one because he doesn't typically do sequels to his films. But this one, I find it hard to believe he wouldn't come back to this knowing that there was a set trilogy in place already. Just really, really yeah. As much as I do love that original Swedish trilogy, is like, yeah, I would, of course, as a as a Fincher fan, I I wanted to see what he was going to do with that trilogy, and it just seemed like the the material and subject matter was kind of right up his alley in terms of he loves to tell. I think his best stories are the ones that are are, you know fall into that category of thriller or maybe horror. Um, um, but also like um, he's he's really concerned. I think also with um, kind of you know, exploring political ideas. And, and that was kind of rife in, in the, the girl with the dragon tattoo trilogy as well. Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's lower on my list, but yeah, the, the, it was so atmospheric. Like there was so much tension, um, a, a great narrative with a great, he does love his twists. So it, it fit him really well. Yeah. It mm-hmm. was a good movie. Solid pick. Yeah. And we're entering the top three. <laughs> this is a very difficult top three. Let's hear what you're doing. Oh, this was so tough. Um, I'm going to have to go with uh, Zodiac for number three. Zodiac is one of those movies that just, every time I watch it, it just keeps getting better and better and better. I have to admit, when I first watched Zodiac, it was not one of my top Fincher films. But I kept coming back to it. There was something itching away in my brain. And I come back to it again mm-hmm. and again and every time. It just pulled me in a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. I love, I'm a sucker for stories about um, the press and investigative journalism. Um, I'm a sucker for the thrillers and, and the murder mysteries. But just there's, even though it's not like a straight up maybe thriller or a straight up horror movie, there are moments in this movie that are so, so tense and so intense like there's that one scene Mm -hmm. where jake gyllenhaal's character is going to this um this individual's house investigating the murderer and he's it was specifically about the the posters and to get the signature to see if it matches another signature but the guy asked him to go down to his basement and he's going down into this deep dark dank basement (laughs) and he hears floorboards above him creaking and it's like, and one of the things was like, oh, the, the murderer might have had a basement and it was rare. Having basements is rare in California. And it's like, the guy was acting yeah. all creepy. And it's like, you don't like, you 
think like nothing could possibly happen. This can't be it. But you also think is like, oh, oh my goodness, like this guy is in serious trouble. Like this, the, the tension in that scene every time, and I've seen it so many times, and I still like my heart's racing and like my body's tense. Like every everything about yeah. that, yeah. Zodiac is just a phenomenal film, phenomenal piece of filmmaking um, from David Fincher specifically, and then like the. the Knockout cast, you got Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal, and the rest mm-hmm. of that cast, which is great. Um, the music, like one of those scenes that you said, like I still have it imprinted in my brain. That building getting that skyscraper getting built in kind of like fast yeah, forward yeah. motion to kind of show yeah. the passage of passage of time. Such a neat way to show passage of time. Really interesting, but yeah, everything about Zodiac just gets better and better for me over time. Really, really amazing film. I gotta go check out that director's cut. Like, yeah, pronto. you do. <laughs> my number three uh, was probably my number one film of all time for quite a few years, and this is Fight Club. Oh, I'm like, 1999. What is happening? Everything I thought I knew is wrong, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> I know, and this is—it's honestly like. Like, especially the top three. Like, these are yeah. the upper, upper top tier of the films. It's really hard to place 100%. these. The reason I put this one down a couple points on the rankings is, is probably just because I haven't had an urge to check it out in a little while. This was 1999. I remember so clearly. I missed this in theaters. I bought it on DVD. Um, fell in love with it from day one. And what we watched it. I mean, we watched it dozens of times. It was oh, just yeah. every moment of this film is great. I love what it's doing. Um, and really, we were kind of at this age where it seemed like uh, very relevant to us, like as we were hitting our 20s. And I know this is more of a uh, it's more of a commentary for Gen X, I think, but we could definitely relate as being close to that generation. Um, I don't know. I've, I've ranked it a bit lower because... I'm scared to go back to it. I'm scared that's going to have lost some of its magic and hold on me. So I, it's it's honestly probably been seven or eight years, if not ten years, since I've seen this movie. I kind of want it to live on in my head <laughs> as the you know the the best Fincher film, if not the best film I'd seen for a long time. It's really difficult to put it at number three, but man, Fight Club is entirely something else really really good no and i think our top three are there's a i know there's a couple overlapping here <laughs> um so mm-hmm. my top two so that's this is the thing like top one and two is so tough to pick but number two i'm gonna have to go with seven um seven okay. is just hands down just one of the best films of all time let alone david fincher films one of the best thrillers of all time <laughs> Um, one of the best, I mean, I think you could classify this as a horror film. I mean, especially when you get into some of the later elements, oh, yeah. uh, just a, a great horror film and just a perfect example of, I still like ingrained in my head some of these shots and some of these scenes and, and some of the camera work, which normally as, as a layman watching film, I'm not really always tuned in to all the kind of uh, what I'll call the cinematic grammar of like camera shots and lenses and, and angles and stuff. But with David Fincher, it stands out to me, not in a bad way, but in a way that you can, it just, it's married with the scene. It's married with the theme mm-hmm. so well. And some of those shots are so ingrained in my head. And just like, this is peak 
Fincher atmosphere. Everything's dark. It's, it's I think it's raining for the full like for the entire length of the the, yeah. the movie. It's <laughs> it's either raining or clouded over. Um, just like the darkness of the themes, the darkness of the subject matter. Um, you know they got Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in really career-defining roles. Um, also, mm-hmm. I mean Kevin Spacey, despite his personal life, he put on an amazing performance in that movie. Amazingly creepy performance. Yeah. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was in there as well. She did a great job. Um, you wouldn't normally associate her with, with David Fincher and the kind of the, maybe this dark material. Um, but yeah, just the writing was on point. The directing was on point. The acting was on point. And just like every time I watch that, I just, I have a sense of dread come over me. So yes, seven yeah. has to be um, my number two. What a wild ride. That seven of is. two. My, My number two is Panic Room. Wow. I absolutely adore this movie. It's this one seems to be a big difference between you you and I. I can't remember where you had it ranked, but it was quite a bit lower. Uh, Panic Room. I was amped for this film up to its release point. Uh, Jodie Foster knocking it out of the park. And there's a lot of other faces here. Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, and an early, uh, like a young Kristen Stewart. Also, as you well. have to bring up there. Dwight Yoakam as Raul. Dwight Yoakam, yeah. Really, just this killer cast. And I think it speaks to maybe my love for more of the horror suspense films that Panic Room and, you know, spoiler alert, Seven is the last one, is my number one. Uh, but Panic Room specifically is. This home invasion, it's a it's scary as hell. It's really terrifying. Oh, yeah. It's really tense. I love the way it's shot. He really fooled around with a lot of interesting camera things where there's CGI coffee mugs and, and whatnot, but the camera's flying through. I just loved it. I just love the atmosphere of it. I love that it was set in one location throughout the entire film. Um just, no, wow. it is pretty amazing. One of the things that stood out to me about Panic Room was like how David Fincher is able to raise the stakes in a seemingly low stakes scenario of a of a simple home invasion. Mm-hmm. Right? This this is not, um, you know, world changing. You know, nobody's saving the world. It's just like yeah. a bunch of people in this really small enclosed claustrophobic setting about like some people home alone and some people breaking in to steal some stuff. But all of a sudden it's like, yeah. it feels like for them, those characters, their world, it's their world that's at risk. And it's, it's just amazing yeah. how we can ratchet up such a simple premise to have that, that level of tension and storytelling. It's amazing. Brilliant. If at least one <laughs> movie left, I think we know what it is for It's pretty you. obvious for both of us now. Um, number one for me is still got to be Fight Club. Still, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, just, um, you know, the, the marriage of Chuck Palahniuk's dark, twisted mind and David Fincher's dark, twisted mind is <laughs> just kind mm-hmm. of perfect in terms of, of you know, thematically, um, you know, what it had to say. It was a, obviously it was a satire, maybe not obviously, um, looking at some of the interpretations nowadays, but it was a yeah. <laughs> incredibly important satire on consumerism. You know, critiquing, um, you know, gender roles, specifically um, certain types of of masculinity. Um, it was, you know, critiquing materialism, but it was doing it in these kind of in a really perverse and profane way that I don't know if you could 
if you could really capture it was such a movie of its time it's there's so many timeless themes in it but it's also such a movie of its time of the of the 90s and the late 90s specifically um but yeah so much of it still holds true today and it's like i love how both chuck polinick and david fincher they love posing these big important philosophical and social and existential questions but they never ever give easy answers they always leave space for the audience to answer things themselves um to the to the to the film's detriment and to its benefit right because it's it's mm-hmm. fight club is is problematic because it's so often misinterpreted and it's become like almost uh a Bible of sorts for like movements like the incel movement who completely misread and misinterpret mm. the themes. Yes. But I mean, for those of us, you know, looking with critical eyes, I mean, this is just an amazing movie. And specifically, yes, I think it speaks more to male audiences than female audiences. It was dealing specifically more with kind of male themes and how um, I think Chuck Polinick himself said that he was specifically trying to create a narrative exploring ways in which men maybe lack the sufficient means to engage with each other emotionally in a positive way and to form, um, mm. you know, have those social scripts to form positive narratives about their lives in the same way that women did, whether you agree with him or not, I think as a man, this still, still hits home for me as well in terms of some of the themes of what we now call toxic masculinity. But I think you like mm-hmm. David Fincher was, and Chuck Palahniuk were exploring these themes before we even had that kind of term for it. Right. They were in, in some ways they were yeah. really ahead of their time. And I could go on with like this forever about Fight Club, but yeah, number one for me, <laughs> still one of my favorite David Fincher movies and one of my favorite movies of all time, Fight Club. Well, Fight Club sounds like a real focus episode for you that's coming up in, in a couple of months. I time, think right? I'm going to have to do some, <laughs> I'm going to have to rewatch this. As I said, it, like you said, we watch yeah. this constantly to the point where it's it's burned in my brain where I can replay an entire yeah. movie. So I haven't seen it in a couple of years now. But I think I'm going to have to revisit it and do some, maybe record a solo episode or or do some writing here doubt, for yeah. sure. It's going to be great. And that leaves number one for me is seven. Nice. Um, I mean, you, you said a lot of great things about it before. I don't know if I could add that much more to this. I love that it seems like it's kind of a an easy trope to utilize in a police you know, detective film where you have an older cop who is literally weeks away from retirement and a young rookie just transferring into the department. In this case, like Brad Pitt's characters transferred into the city so he can tackle some real, you know, quote unquote, real crimes. And they're both handed maybe the biggest case that they could possibly take on. And they approach it from different angles. I love seeing their detective work. I love seeing them play off of each other. It's absolutely fantastic. Like you said, it's raining all the time, but the atmosphere is dripping with with greatness. I, I love every second of this. This film coming out in 1995, I believe, I probably saw it more in 98 or yeah. 99, and it really kind of introduced that really like gritty, like this is a dark film. There's a lot of disturbing things going on in here. So for me, it was seeing some of these disturbing things depicted on screen, seeing those for the first time and just saying, wow, cinema can start pushing the limits of of what I'm accustomed to seeing in movies. Um, just wow. And then, of course, that killer ending. What's yeah, in the box? like it's become a meme now, but you look at it 
back in the day and even in the context of the film when you're watching it. And yeah, it's funny now out of context, but in the context of the film, it's like it's still so intense. It's just, yeah. yeah. And this is one of those few films that, like Fight Club, I would never want to spoil for an audience just coming into this. Like there's, you know, a next generation by this point where <laughs> it's just kind of depressing to say, but there's a depression. There's a generation now of, of, of audience members who might not have even seen these films and going into it for the first time. And, and seven is just like, yeah, it's tough for me to pick between Fight Club and seven is my number one. Like it's just, yeah. they're both like, to me, quote unquote, perfect films. Like they are just, this is Fincher at the top of his game, master of his craft. This is yeah. showing why he is, like, he's one of our favorite filmmakers, and he deserves to be, I think. With those two films, every subsequent film, I have expected that level of greatness. So it's it's kind of difficult when you go into a new Fincher film and you, you're you wanting to recreate that height, that yeah. cinema, <laughs> and it just doesn't quite achieve that. And you're thinking, oh, man, what a disappointment. But then, I mean, you look at these yeah. movies, these movies are all hits. Like, these are all yeah. fantastic. And putting together this list was was grueling. I only spent maybe 10 minutes on this. I didn't want to spend too much time on it. I didn't want to put my mind through the stress of trying to have to determine which is better, Gone Girl or Zodiac. <laughs> Where should the game go? Honestly, these are all, like, I kind of did it like you. I was, like, a Band-Aid, <laughs> quick. Like, one rip, clean off. Because I was just like, yeah. I had my, like, top like four or five. And then after that, it was just like, yeah, like you said, it's like, like fight club and seven are like, they're genre defining, you know, cult films. Yeah. And like his other films are just amazing. You know, like it's like that. <laughs> so it's like, Oh yeah. He just, David Fincher just came up with another masterpiece, but it's not like a genre defining cult <laughs> classic masterpiece. It's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> It's also something to be said. I think you mentioned it a couple of times. A lot of these films really are uh, very rewarding on rewatch. Like watching Zodiac again and again, you're constantly discovering new things. I think that could be said for a lot of oh. these films. Um, the Social Network, you mentioned Aaron Sorkin's screenplay there. The dialogue. If you just watch the movie going in, just expecting this biopic, you're going to get something out of it. And then you rewatch it, really pick up on the dialogue and just how just how snappy everything is and how Fincher is able to create a Fincher-esque film around that. Yeah, and I love the way uh. he's able to film dark scenes without them being too dark. Like, he, he's able to yes. film, like, visually dark scenes, but you never feel like you can't see what's going on. You never feel like you can't follow the actions. They're dark, but they're still well lit. I think there's an art form there that's maybe in terms of cinematography, in terms of, of that, uh, you know, creating that scene in, in what I'm talking, composition, right? Scene composition and, and mm -hmm. lighting that I think it's such a fine edge to walk where you, you go either too dark or too light, but there's that sweet, like knife edge balance where yeah. David Fincher is able to walk that visually. And he's able to film like really dark scenes that don't feel dark. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's really wild. So Fincher, obviously, this fantastic filmography, and really, I think, kind of challenging himself with a very different film. Like, this isn't a true crime film like he's been accustomed to. It's not a suspenseful, tense film. Right. It's, he's really busting into different genres. Mank is a film about the film industry, something I was not expecting to get out of Fincher. 
And here we are with a story about Herman Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Citizen Kane along with Orson Welles. Um, I think there is a bit of controversy where this story takes kind of an anti-Orson Welles stance where, from what I'm reading, the general consensus is that Welles was the primary screenplay writer. He was primarily responsible for Citizen Kane, whereas Fincher's Mank storyline follows one where Herman Mank himself, he's the primary contributor to the Citizen Kane script. Um, and I think I saw a soundbite where Fincher didn't really want to play into that one way or another. He's just presenting a, a history here that's interesting to watch here. Right. But he, he obviously did kind of take that side. And whether that's that's probably based on research that he's done. Um, but yeah, the, the story definitely makes it feel like, um, you know, Herman Mankiewicz basically wrote the original draft of... Um, Citizen Kane, and then it felt like it was left open for basically Orson Welles to kind of refine it and and work it into the yeah the yeah the masterpiece that we all know and love today. I'm not personally familiar enough with the history of Citizen Kane to make any kind of intelligent commentary one way or the other, but it feels yeah. like a lot in recent years that there's been kind of a demythol a demythologization of Orson Welles. Uh, which seems yeah. to be kind of it's a common theme, I think, in in um, the postmodern kind of critique and postmodern sensibility of kind of deconstruction and especially deconstructing our mythology and deconstructing our heroes. And Orson Welles has long been held up in in Hollywood mythology as like this, you know, uber mensch kind of genius auteur visionary. And I think that there's been kind of the historical pendulum feels like it with Mank and with other um, works and with other writing, it feels like the pendulum is kind of swinging back the other way to look at Orson Welles from a more um, holistic perspective, as opposed to just like this genius wunderkind who came in and just like invented cinema. Yeah. Right. And for this movie, I think it's worth noting that um, Mank was written by the, sorry, the original screenplay for Mank was written by David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher. And I think believe he wrote it in the 90s, and it was kind of based on an article from the early 70s, which kind of introduced the idea that Orson Welles maybe did wasn't 100% responsible for the screenplay of Citizen Kane. Uh, so there's a bit of history there, but I think back then it was just kind of critically uh, panned as not a valid uh, theory. It was kind of disproven. I'm not sure, Which, and like I've only I'm only looking at about five or ten minutes worth of googling yeah, around and, here. Yeah, and the whole thing for me is I know for some people have like real kind of they have a dog in that fight either philosophically, or you know, or um, in terms of you know how they how they view film and how their their relationship with film. But for me, even if Orson Welles didn't write Citizen Kane completely, even if somebody else wrote it, it's like, so what? It was still a great film. It does. I don't think it detracts from Orson Welles' contributions yeah. to filmmaking or storytelling. No. It's one thing to write a great film, but it's another thing to take what's that script that's written and and tr yeah. and translate that under the screen and make it great. So it's like Orson Welles is still a great filmmaker, but maybe he wasn't, you know, this. Um, larger-than-life mythological person who was able to to write and direct and edit everything himself, right? He yeah. wasn't this one-man show. It's like, and that's just look at David Fincher. He didn't write every single movie that he made, and they're all fantastic. Yeah, and I think that it's important to have a bit of that context. Um, 
obviously, I don't think either of us had much of a context going into watching Mank for the first time, but it's important in the story because it does come up a few times. There is a subplot, I guess, going around that really gives commentary on what the film industry was like back in the 30s. And they talk about getting the Screenwriters Guild started up. And we have characters who are trying to get Mankiewicz to enroll and pay his dues and really like spearhead this. You know, Mankiewicz was famous for getting a lot of films written. He's won multiple Academy Awards, uh, including for Citizen Kane for, for his writing contribution there. So I think there's some validity to what Fincher is doing here and pointing out maybe he doesn't take a stance one way or another, but it's important to open up the discussion on what the film industry was like back in the 30s. And I think there's some interesting stuff there, like the actors and actresses who are kind of contracted to one studio. Like you're a studio actor. Um, One of the main characters is Marion, played by Amanda Seyfried. Um, At one point in the film, she's leaving MGM to go to Warner Brothers. And it's such a foreign concept where just like the writing is... I think commonly understood, in my mind at least, that a lot of people are writing a film. You'll see two or three people given credit for writing a film, you know, in the opening credits, but I fully understand that maybe a dozen or more people have touched that screenplay, have made additions here and there, and all the behind-the-scenes stuff where we find out is the screenplay changes day-to-day sometimes, like scenes will play out differently. An actor might say things a bit differently. They might have something to contribute on that day. He gets ran into the screenplay, right? I don't know. There's a lot of context there. There's a lot of interesting things going on. One thing that's important to keep in mind, I think, when watching any kind of um, movie that's based on a real person or real historical events is that Mank, just like those other movies, this is not meant to be history, right? So this is not meant to be the actual representation of what happened, even despite sometimes what filmmakers like yeah. um, Oliver Stone will say. Um, this is this is a movie made for entertainment purposes, and it's based mm-hmm. on actual people and actual events, but it's not meant to be an historical record, and so you can't read it as such. Just in, to contextualize yeah. all our discussions about you know, Mankiewicz versus Orson Welles and who wrote what. So I think it's important to contextualize that. Um, But also in in talking about that, I think what Mank did really well, like you were talking about, Brian, was really transporting its audience back to that other place and that time, Mm -hmm. Um, partially through the use of filmmaking techniques. Like it, it was shot in black and white, so it's already evoking that era of filmmaking. I loved all the um, the title screens where it was like the typewriter typing out. Um, yeah. <laughs> got that got that really <laughs> kind of kind of visceral. All those sounds and the, and those specific um, sights and shapes. But yeah, like exploring the film industry, right? And exploring the film industry within the larger kind of social and political um, context of the time, and specifically with. Um, there was a specific election in California going on at the time. Yeah, specifically with William Randolph Hearst, who was um, like this kind of scandal at the time where, um, you know, the, tit- the titular character of Citizen Kane was a thinly veiled um, kind of 
you know, parody or, or caricature of William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. and it caused this kind of big. Um, there was, I think, behind the scenes controversy, and some so it was obviously some social commentary there. Um, but all this was um, part of part of Manx's charm, where it was like taking the simple story about yeah these people writing a script for a Hollywood movie, but then you look at, oh, it's in the middle of the Great Depression. It's in this era where unions are trying to fight for workers' rights. It's in this era where um, one man like Hearst uh, can can essentially control the media, which is like a theme that's prevalent today when you look at the partisanship in in media and politics. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really interesting how Mank is able to take what, on paper sounds like an incredibly boring premise it's like yeah screenwriter writes a script (laughs) it's like yeah that sounds real fun but then he's able to take that and go into herman mankowitz's backstory he's almost like a a forrest gump-esque character where he's involved or he's like peripheral to all these big events going on and again i'm not familiar with his actual history so i'm not sure to what degree he was actually he actually knew hearst and how much that may have influenced yeah. um, his, you know, writing that uh, that character as a kind of uh, a stand-in for Hearst. But it was in the in yeah. the in terms of the movie that made an incredibly compelling movie. Oh yeah. So I mean, it's it's kind of uh, important to note how the film was was told uh, narratively here. I think where the film picks up with Mankiewicz in about 1939-1940 while he's writing Citizen Kane. He was just in a car accident. He's bedridden. He is uh, dictating the screenplay to his assistant, or I can't remember, uh, you know, what her role is. But there's a number of flashbacks, and the story is told in these flashbacks that date throughout the 1930s. So, you know, we get a flashback to when he's beating when he's beating a specific character in a certain situation. And there's a, a lot of that going on. I think it's you touched on. The film being shot in black and white, I thought it looked pretty solid. Um, the film did a couple other things as well to sort of bring you into that period, and that was in the sound. The movie was shot in mono sound, meaning it had one channel. Um, but what they did in the mixing was add an echo to it in the surrounds, and probably you know, for if you're not if you don't have surround sound, you probably still notice this. Sorry, there's a certain theater echo going on in this film that I was instantly familiar with because back in you know the early 2000s we were both living uh, up in North Bay and we would go to this really old theater that was an actual theater and they would show movies and watching Black Hawk Down and the others and a few other movies in that you would get that same kind of echo so I'm watching this film and I'm hearing that same echo I heard 25 years ago in old theaters uh, it, it really helped to immerse me into that, even if I did find it a bit distracting every so often. Did you notice the sound in this movie? Um, I noticed I was getting a lot of vibration on the bass. So oh, maybe yeah. that was it. Um, I don't know. I was just so drawn in by the narrative and, and by the writing. I was really surprised how like witty this film was in terms of the dialogue. Yes. I was just like, I was so drawn in. Um, like I was drawn in by the visual stuff where like, Every once in a while, you'd see like that um, the marker up on the top right-hand corner of the screen, that little uh, with like with like it's called, like a cigarette burn, but it's not a cigarette burn. It's called yeah, uh, exactly, it's that little yeah. circle where the reels changed, right? And I was like little touches yeah. like that, where it's like it just like felt like one of those old one of those old timey movies. 
<laughs> but yeah, just it, it just these tiny visual cues to to really transport you through time. I felt like immersed in this narrative. I felt like I was, you know, in California in the middle of the summer. Like I could feel like the sweat beating on my own forehead in the California sun. It was just yeah, it was. I, yeah, I'm talking about this. It, I'm liking this movie more and more the more I talk about this. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot of interesting things. The cigarette burns. I, honestly, the first time that happened, I was kind of rolling my eyes here. I was just like, <laughs> I understand what's going on. I am also aware that this movie was shot on digital cameras. Yeah, um, I would have actually. I, I found was, myself thinking like, I really wish they would have almost dirtied up the the film a little bit and made it like a grainier to imitate the old kind of film stock. It was. It seemed like a little bit yeah. too clean. Did they film this on digital? They filmed this on 8K okay. digital, um, monochromatic, so it was never shot in color. There's no color version of any of the of the footage nice. in here. Um, but I was surprised that they did that, considering that they used period authentic instruments to create the soundtrack of this. Awesome. So why not create a period authentic film? with the actual lenses and cameras and actual film stock let me see that film grain that was the only thing that was really missing for me to really pull me in because obviously the black and white the the mono sound the the old instruments like everything was immersive except for the video quality honestly but i mean it's kind of a wash i'm still I'm still pulled in by the narrative, like you said. Yeah, and I mean, I think we have to talk about Gary Oldman's performance here. I mean, you always have to talk about Gary Oldman's performance, whatever movie he's in. But this was just, I mean, and I, I know tour de force is kind of cliched at this point, but it, it, it was, pretty, was brilliant. a pretty amazing performance. And just like with the help of that really incredible script, and just like really, I just I found myself laughing out loud at just some of the quips and some of the comebacks, specifically from Herman yeah. Mankiewicz. It was just this is the kind of role that you know I'm sure actors are like crawling over themselves for in Hollywood. It's just an amazingly rich character. I mean, Herman Mankiewicz. It's a, it's a movie about movie making, which Hollywood loves. Obviously, with things like The Artist and Hugo, mm-hmm. um, things like Barton Fink. Or Hail Caesar, um, even things like Tropic Thunder, right? Where they're, it's not maybe critically beloved, yeah. but it's like filmmakers love to write about and, and, and direct films about making film. And so maybe that's why, you know, screenwriters and people who are writers, who are writing characters, who are also screenwriters, make those characters so witty and so likable, even though they're alcoholics and they have these flaws, right? Yeah, and yeah, that's worth pointing out is that uh, Mankiewicz is a pretty hardcore alcoholic in this film. He probably was in real life as well. You sort of get the impression a lot of people were back then. Um, But Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz uh, is playing an incredibly charismatic character, right? I loved watching his interactions. And just like you, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by how witty and sharp some of the dialogue and and jokes were. one scene that really stood out was his walking onto the set of a uh, of a film where he uh, encounters uh, what what is his Will- name uh, L. B. Mayers oh, yeah. uh, of MGM, and you know they have this dialogue, and he turns around, he sees Marion Davies mid scene, 
basically they sort of finish wrapping the scene for a second he just wanders up they're having this killer dialogue back and forth and man this guy he belongs in in hollywood he then wanders over so marion davies uh, uh I, I don't know if it's her husband is um yes william hurst yeah so basically he is he directing or he's just kind of hanging out as well but he gets his attention he wanders over there they have some dialogue and it basically wraps up with hurst sort of uh it is uh <laughs> it was like this uh, old school dolly with like 15 yeah. people on it they end up riding off and he's just sort of turns around and just like i like that guy and it's like yeah her him Mankiewicz is a difficult character not to like. Well, I think they set him up. I think there was a specifically a metaphor of having him as the fool or the court jester. And I know a lot of people talk like for a lot of people who don't have maybe a literary background or an academic background, like it may sound like an insult, but a lot of times um, the fool or the jester character in stories, especially older stories, he was essentially a character who was actually the wisest of the characters and he would speak these truths, mm-hmm. right? He would be, he would be given license. Everyone would look at him as like, Oh, he's this, he's this clown, but he was given license to speak truth and specifically to speak truth to power. And so he, but it was entertaining, right? He was, it was this very kind of complex role. that's often maybe it doesn't translate to kind of modern terminology, but he was like Mankiewicz was essentially um, Hearst's court jester, in, in that sense of, you know, yeah. he, he found him very entertaining because he would always speak his mind and he would always kind of challenge other people's assumptions. And, and you think like, yeah. Oh, like these rich, powerful people don't like that, but they actually do have that. Um, it's, it's interesting to have that, how they, they need that still. They need somebody to tell them to their face. It's like, Oh yeah, you're this rich, powerful guy who was influenced in politics and, and to call that yeah. out. Right. And they specifically call, Mankiewicz a court jester uh, near the end of the film um, I think we're beyond the point of spoiler warnings which spoilers. is fine you know. <laughs> hashtag spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> um, L.B. Mayer really does not like Mankiewicz I think because he is kind of outspoken in that way right he's going to speak those truths and there's uh, this really banana scene near the end of the film where <laughs> Mankiewicz kind of crashes this dinner costume party and goes on how long is the scene like 10 15 minutes yeah. long so to give context to this first though so there was um so mgm i think that was yeah mgm essentially made a propaganda film to help win this california election for the republicans and there was a it was a friend of yes. mankiewicz specifically who was who was kind of given his first directorial um debut to direct this propaganda film and so this guy afterwards he started to feel guilty because he's like oh i swayed the election unfairly he ends up spoilers mm-hmm. committing suicide and so mankowitz essentially kind of blames mgm especially specifically mayor and specifically hearst because hearst is bankrolling um mgm and so he's he comes in to this dinner and he's drunk and he's upset because he's blaming them and he's blaming the social structure that they created for his friend's death and his friend's suicide. But yeah. Yeah. There's some really surreal scenes in here. Uh, earlier in the film, they're having more of a generic uh, like social gathering oh, and everyone is around the, in this giant room. There's couches and chairs. People aren't like just seated in modern day living rooms here, right? This is an entertaining room uh, and people are just speaking uh, well it makes me wonder like back in the day you didn't have like 
you didn't have TV and, and things like that to distract you. So it's like you're just sitting in a room and you'd have like conversations. And so if you were a witty conversationalist, all of a sudden it's like your yeah. value goes up tenfold because that's entertaining. Yeah. Um, but to go back to that final dinner that you were talking about, that 10 minute scene mm-hmm. where Gary Oldman's le- as, as Mankiewicz goes in there and he's creating this story, which is essentially mocking Hearst and all these other people in there. And like slowly yeah. but surely all these other people, people who were who were all dressed up it's a weird costume party where they're dressed up as like um the theme was like the circus again i think that's some commentary maybe on fincher's part on on hearst and his whole entourage um and and the rich in general but then like like mankiewicz is drunk and he's laying into these people and like you can tell like mayor is he's fuming but hearst is just sitting there super calm and hearst played by charles yeah. dance by the way um, you may Brilliant. know from Game of Thrones as the Elder mm-hmm. Lannister. Also, you may know him from the Underworld series as uh, that old vampire <laughs> Thomas. But Charles Dance, and he's just like, he's got this presence, but he's just sitting there super calm. And like, I was waiting for him to like just explode on this guy because he's ruining his dinner party. People, eventually, he's just left alone. And just this Hurst and Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz is like, everyone's leaving. And then finally he throws up on the floor and everybody leaves except for Hurst. And Hurst just like calmly goes over to him, puts his arm around him, tells him that story, the parable of the dancing monkey, obviously implying that <laughs> Mankiewicz, he, he viewed him merely as this, this object yeah. for his own twisted amusements. And he has no other value yeah. as a human being or to him. And he just calmly walks him down the hall, tell him the story and just like calmly pushes him out the door and closes the door behind him. And it's just like this, there's a menace to that conversation that wouldn't have been the same if they got into a screaming match, you know, it was was so subdued, but there was just so menacing and you just like, you feel sick afterwards, right? Cause you realize like Mankiewicz thought he was actually contributing and he was actually part of that circle, but really Hearst always viewed him as just this essentially this dancing monkey he was of literally no value and easily replaceable to him and it's like there was that commentary not just on their relationship but on the relationship between kind of the upper and middle to lower classes as well yeah i really like how you describe it. the end of that scene is just the pure menace that it was i i couldn't quite put my finger on it but i think you nailed it right there that was I mean, that was a hell of a scene, really. <laughs> in, in a movie full of incredible scenes, like that was just, that was an incredible scene. And to go and have it like that long, I don't, I don't yeah. think it was one take, if I recall, but it was like, that's, that's an intense scene to keep having to get back into character for, right? Like, well, what's well, interesting, you make, make a mention of the takes. So this one apparently was filmed over a hundred times, a hundred different takes to quote unquote, get it and, right. Yeah, um, one of the things about that scene too is like Gary Oldman is is acting drunk the whole time. And I don't know if you've ever yeah. tried to actually act drunk when you're not drunk. It's actually really hard not to go like over the top and and, mm-hmm. and be like a, turn into a caricature. But he's like the way he just slurs his words and the way he's like not comically off balance, but you can tell he's just having a little bit of trouble controlling himself. I don't know. I don't think Gary Oldman actually got drunk for that scene. Um I'm I'm hoping he didn't. And I Probably, probably not because he wouldn't be able to maintain it for the length of time it took. Yeah, and like, and just like, I don't know if people are just aware of how what a, a razor's edge it is to play that kind of state of. 
being of being drunk and like there's a tendency to like overplay it and being over dramatic but he just plays it so subtle right yeah one of the uh the earlier scenes that uh was pretty notable as well enough so that you messaged me while you were watching the movie <laughs> was the film pitch earlier in the film and i thought you might want to talk about that for a moment because that was a really fun scene to watch where you're seeing these characters like not only bounce off each other but they're they're kind of like creating a film and selling it in one spot it was really fascinating well i love how it's almost like pulling back the curtain and and seeing like the you know the wizard of oz is really just a man behind a curtain pulling the pulling the strings and like see that magic stripped away like it just not just in the film industry, but imagine if somebody came into your work and they saw only the final product of what happened. And it's like, oh, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But you do that, you create this amazing. But then they saw how it was actually done in the back end, and like, this is this is insane. Like, this is crazy. Like, how does anything how does anything actually get done? Just like <laughs> to see how the sausage is made. But it was just really interesting. Yeah, like these like Mankowitz and a bunch of other writers go into this meeting with the studio execs and they're supposed to have this film written or this film ready to pitch to them and it's clear they have nothing and they're just making up a movie on the spot yeah. and they throw the <laughs> climax onto the new guy right at the very very yeah. end Is yeah right? it's like almost like it's almost like a rite of passage right or kind of this you know induction yeah. into the, into our world and he's like, and he comes up with this ending. And he's like, this is this actually sounds like a pretty neat little monster movie <laughs> but it's just like it's really yeah, I don't know if like the it felt like the studio guys weren't in on the joke, so if, but it felt like the writers were all just like it was almost like they were like, yeah. you know, you get to that place in in your job where it's just like you're so cynical about that job. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just me, yeah. But I think you get to that place where just like ah, oh, yeah, he wants it, boss wants another movie. Okay, so we're just gonna go in and like <laughs> we're gonna have a little bit of fun with this, and we're gonna be like just make it up on the spot and see if he can figure it out, right? Just like those yeah. little those little games yeah. you play at work to kind of amuse yourself. <laughs> Well, it's kind of interesting. I feel like back in the 30s, when, the, when they're depicting these film pitches, like uh, Mankiewicz uh, essentially is employed by MGM at the time. Like He's a full-time employee of that company, and they would have a, a group of writers, and Mankiewicz is kind of the leader of those writers. So it stands to reason that they would be pitching stories, you know, or pitching movies almost every day. Uh, unlike today's Hollywood, and I don't try to pretend to know how Hollywood works right now, but from what I understand is that there are pitches happening all the time, and it's just like it is impossible for one person to, to stand out. Nobody is an employee of the major studio. They're pitching to different agents, and they're pitching to different people all over the place. Uh, what a different process it would be to get a I film I mean, made. unless you're... Unless it's a Netflix film, in which case you just call for customer service and you can probably pitch them a film. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, like the yeah, just seeing like the studio system back in the day, where I think you were talking about, you know, like writers, but also actors would specifically be signed with a specific studio, and like it was just it's bizarre when you think about today. Like they would actually have like um morality clauses in their contracts where they couldn't be seen to be promiscuous or like drinking alcohol or other things in their real lives. just like, they really had control over people, specifically women, right? They were a lot more Mm -hmm. concerned with the images of women as, you know, historically that, that makes sense in terms of um, how society has treated women, but it's just insane how much control 
these companies had over individual people's lives and how people were tied is like, yeah, the studio is like, of course I'm an actor and I only make movies for one studio. I'm a writer and I only Mm -hmm. write movies for one studio. Of course it makes back then. It was like, yeah, it's a no brainer. And now we look back at that and it's like, that's insane. Like that's the most, it's the craziest thing you can think of. Right. Well, it's a, this beautiful scene. I love the scene where, at this point in the in the movie, Marion Davies is leaving MGM, and she's on the on the studio a lot. But also, Mankiewicz is kind of racing to meet up with Marion to tell her to tell Hearst not to run these political ads, propaganda right? films. Um, probably, yeah, exactly. They're these propaganda films. He meets up with her in the car while she's driving off the lot. And she's like, can you tell him not to run this? And I think she sympathizes with them. She would do it for him. But she can't go back because she's done her exit already. So there's a whole party, a whole event happened. She made her exit. She never plans on stepping foot on MGM grounds again, right? She's going over to the Warner Brothers and she just can't do this pretty important thing for Mankowitz. Um... I, I just love it because it's kind of played for comedy as well. She says, please don't laugh at this. So Mank is stone-faced through it. He just gets out of this moving car. They're not moving that fast. Walks out of this moving car and just starts breaking up. Like, just starts laughing yeah. in one of the alleyways of this. Of not this laughing because it's funny, but laughing at the absurdity of the whole yeah. thing where it's, like, thematically exactly. what's going on, right? Is he's realizing this this cynicism where people are more concerned about their own image and this this woman that he he had like a platonic affair with it was really it wasn't really mm-hmm. clear but this woman that he cared about and he thought he knew he thought there was something deeper and he kind of realizes like no like she's part of this kind of rich kind of upper class too that are more concerned about appearances than actual yeah. people's lives and people's well-beings, right? And so there was that common kind of commentary yeah. in there. That was a key scene where he was, where he was kind of having that break with the upper classes. Where he was, it felt like Mankiewicz was kind of in between, like, like the kind of lower and upper classes. He was almost like this go-between middleman between where he was like very socially yeah. mobile, right? He was hanging out with these all these different people from these different walks of life. And then he was just, that was part of the disillusionment I think he started to feel with those kind of upper classes and the rich people that he was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the film probably could have delved into that a little more than it was, but there was a ton of subtle nods to that. And I don't feel like he was really conflicted that much throughout the movie. You know, like he wasn't facing his own conflict on, you know, which side does he want to sort of lie on. He's definitely... You know, the lone wolf out there. <laughs> well, I think um, part of that scene with Marion, um, really, he's, I think that was his own character growth and starting to see kind of his own selfishness mm-hmm. as, you know, not picking sides, but then him not picking sides and not voicing up, you know, he was, he would make all this commentary on things when it suited him. But as soon as like he knew about that propaganda film being made and he didn't, he went to see that studio exec that he kept butting heads with, but he didn't really take a stand, right? He's just like, oh, well, I guess, you know, like they're doing this bad thing. What can I do to stop it? And then he even goes to, like, he knows that his friend who made this propaganda film is starting to feel guilty, goes to try and stop him from committing suicide. Um, he's eventually, he's unsuccessful. He manages to get the bullets, but not the gun. 
and he goes back to his mm-hmm. to this gentleman's wife and he's like but he's got like a whole box full of bullets and 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 that whole thing but it's like so in that sense you can you can tell when he goes to that when he goes to that dinner the republican party when they're on the night of the election and they're counting things up um it's still it's still not clear whether he's against that, um that particular candidate because of political ideals or because of his personal relationships with with Meyer and Hearst it's probably some kind of combination in there but you can see him starting to um come down on a side as it were in his mm-hmm. in his own way but yeah this is what's great about this movie and about this character of of Mankiewicz you know um Mank is that he's not portrayed as this perfect character he's portrayed as a deeply flawed man despite his you know charm and his wit is obviously uh, a, a darker side to this guy um and and, yeah. and i really appreciate that they didn't try this wasn't a movie about re rehabilitating um the image of this historical person it was you know using this historical setting and these historical people and these historical characters to explore these larger ideas and to give voice to um you know that that political push and pull between you know the the populist fighting for workers rights versus this um somebody a bit more detached who's being you know funded by big corporate interests and you know, you look at like the mm. formation of the Writers Guild, which is a union for writers, and like Mankiewicz isn't taking a side on that. Um, specific, and then you look at that all that in the context of the Great Depression, because I think one of the reasons he's not fighting for um, workers, uh, specifically for writers, to get higher wages is like he's like, do you realize he's talking to his brother at one point? He's like, do you realize if you told the public, it's like, yeah, you guys are making seven hundred and fifty dollars a week while people are like starving out there to death. You think you're, people yeah. are really going to support your union? <laughs> and so it's like, it's it was, yeah, it's obviously, you know, like it's it's more complicated in the Great Depression, right? To put even more kind of historical context, and like it was all these different layers working together, and at the heart of it. You know, and they kind of in David Fincher's narrative and David Fincher's version explaining, you know, this kind of this onion and, and peeling away these layers of the onion to get at the heart of it, which was at the heart of all this, you know, all these different strands in this web was, you know, Mankiewicz writing this script and kind of tying all these threads together and showing like, I think maybe the intent was to show that Citizen Kane, um, it, you know, it was. A, a triumph in filmmaking, not just because of, you know, like the, the quality of the writing and the quality of the filmmaking, but also for ways in which it you know, both reflected and challenged like social conventions of the time. Right. And how it fit into that and how it fit historically into that period. Really fantastic. I mean, the more you go on about it, the more we talk <laughs> yeah. about this, I think I'm appreciating the film that much more. I was, I wasn't sure where it landed for me initially, like, I knew what I was watching was good, partly because I couldn't take my eyes off it throughout the entire runtime. I was pulled in. Uh, the movie is just over two hours long. It doesn't stay too nope. long. It doesn't feel like it's been cut down at all. This movie just really hits properly, I think. And it's interesting to see a lot of divisive opinions on it online. Uh, quite a few negative comments about it. But it is generally critically well received no and i don't i don't think it would be a david fincher film if it didn't have 
that kind of dialogue where people seem to really love it or yeah. really hate it, which to me is a good sign. Like to me, the worst thing you can say about a piece of art is that it was boring or it was forgettable or it's like, ah, I didn't really care. Like, no, like if you, if you take a piece of art and you really, really love it or you really, really hate it, I think that that, that that piece of art is doing its job and that artist is doing its job. So for Mank to be like, yeah. have the one camp to be people love it and are fawning over it. And the other camp is to be like, Oh, I hate this. Why is this even made? I think that's a sign of a great filmmaker. And I think that fits well into, you could probably say that that was the reaction for just about every film that David Fincher has come out with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not wrong for sure. Um, with all that being said, I don't know if you have anything more to add on it before I ask you a question of which I'm pretty sure I know the answer to. All right, shoot. Are you going to be buying this film on Blu-ray when it comes out? Oh, <laughs> well, this is kind of like a trick question, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so absolutely. I've got um, David Fincher is one of the directors I have carved out on my shelf of a physical um, media. I have a specific director section and David Fincher mm-hmm. is one of those directors where I have a specific section carved out for his movies. So yeah, Mank, I'm definitely going to pick up on hopefully 4k. Hopefully there's going to be a, a 4k release of this. Yeah. It's kind of difficult to say uh, because this is a Netflix film, uh, their home releases like their physical media releases have been handled in different ways. And we've seen uh, criterion, uh, pick up some of the other films like Marriage Story and The Irishman uh, and seen, seen them get really nice releases. Um, I'm the same way. I don't have a specific director section on my shelf, but I do own every Fincher film. It's it's one of those kind of low-hanging fruits. Obviously, the movies are good, but also there's only 10 of them, and now there's 11, so it doesn't really, you know... It's not out of the realm of possibility yeah. to just go buy another one. Even if the film was two or two and a half stars, I'm still going to go ahead and grab this to complete that Fincher collection. But just having talked about it right here, I kind of look forward to watching this again. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, if you're getting into film and you want to start with a filmmaker, like David Fincher is great, not just because he's a great filmmaker, but because it's easy to for the completionists out there you can easily pick up all of his films um the great thing about them is that they're easy to find too and even benjamin button was released on criterion as one of the budget releases one of criterion's budget releases easy to find i think the only other criterion he had was the game i think yes which was a nice oh yeah it's it's sitting on my shelf if there were any more i'm sure i would own them but so what was your uh rating out of five for this out of five stars Oh man, I I saw this about two nights ago, three nights ago maybe, and I wasn't sure what to rate it. I've thought about it. I was asked this the other day. I thought maybe three and a half stars, but honestly, I mean, after today's discussion, I could see easily four stars. Now, three and a half stars would be the lowest I've ever rated a Fincher film, I think, and I don't think it deserves to be that low. Okay. Um, so I'm going to sit in at about three and a half or four stars, but I'm going to sit on the fence on that one. Okay. So like, <laughs> it's always tough to rank movies when you first see them, but it looks like I ranked Mank a four out of five stars plus the coveted, uh, hearts like oh. on, uh, a letterbox. You gave it letterbox. the hearts. 
Just nice. for context, if you recall, Mank I re- ranked at four out of five, and Mank was number seven on my list of <laughs> of David Fincher films. Yeah. So again, yeah, it's... <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this and wondering about my bias towards David Fincher, it's like just to put yeah. everything I've said in context. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of David Fincher's. If, if, so maybe take everything that I've said with, or take everything we've said with a grain of salt. It may be good to also go and listen to somebody who really hates Fincher to balance us out maybe, but, uh, or yeah, like I'm kind of tempted to go online and try and find some of these negative reviews just to see what it is. Cause I really can't think of anything negative to say about this film. I mean, I, I didn't really, I mean, I mentioned rolling my eyes a bit with a cigarette burn. I w- wish he did it on film stock rather than digital, but like, what kind of critique is that? That doesn't feel all that That's legitimate. legitimate. I mean, they are parts no, of the film, but it's also like, like you're saying, I think it's kind of minor. Like, this is the thing. It's like, yeah, it, like David Fincher's filmmaking is just so good as like, it comes down to kind of nitpicky stuff. Right. Yeah. And I don't really want to go down that road of just picking apart little things. We could talk about the historical accuracy of items. Like I, I think a lot of the political subplot didn't happen with Mankiewicz involved it was kind of added in there for the intrigue of the film. Yeah. But he, you know what? I'm not, no. not going to s- split hairs. No, again, a big disclaimer when you're watching movies that are quote-unquote based on a true story or on historical personages, they're still just stories. If you want the actual historical accuracy, you have to go and do research in actual historical texts. Don't take movies as history, boys and girls. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it was also interesting that David Fincher's father wrote this film, which we, we did mention before. Um, it's a, he, I think Fincher's been trying to get this made for just over 20 years now, since the mid-90s. Um, I'm sure, just like Mankiewicz and Wells, multiple people have had their hands on that script and have, have modified it. But I think this is the only film where Jack Fincher has received credit for, and it's like, man, I would have liked to see more of this stuff. He, he put together... A solid story. Yeah, just here. for context, is his father still alive? Right. No, okay. he's not. So this was a kind of a neat kind of memorial to or tribute to his father, even, right? So it puts I mean yeah. that's another so it feels yeah, like this feels like a very it felt like a very personal film, and maybe that kind of helps explain why, right? Recommendations? Definitely recommend watching this movie. Yeah. I mean I don't think there's a Fincher film I wouldn't recommend. And this one being so nicely available on Netflix. Uh, is an easy watch, I think. I think this is definitely worth your time. Uh, maybe go into it with a bit of knowledge about the real-life events, but stick around for the characters, the acting, the story. There are multiple layers working here. I thought it was just a really... Um, it was just a really solid, intriguing film. Yeah, this was definitely. I definitely recommend checking out Mank, whether it's on Netflix or whether hopefully we get a physical media release of this. Um, but yeah, it was. I was kind of turned off by the subject matter. It it seems kind of doesn't seem very engaging. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's David Fincher, and it's an incredibly engaging um, narrative, um, incredibly witty script and screenplay. And an incredibly kind of personal narrative. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's all around. It's just a really great film. Highly recommend. Fantastic. So that kind of wraps up episode number nine. I can't believe number ten is right around the corner, Nathan. This is wild. 
Oh, we're here to stay, baby. Right? Uh, as always, we really appreciate you listening and hanging out with us today. We look forward to the next time. As always, keep it real.